0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Hey, hanging in there, folks. Uh, strange week in a collection of other strange weeks and what looks to be a long line of strange weeks ahead, um, but I'm feeling hopeful this week. And that came after kind of a dark weekend for me, and you know, I'm noticing that a lot of People in my life, my my friends and family, um, are having you know a couple bad days here or there, collection of bad days, and then some lighter days. And I think you know all of us are, well, a lot of us are on that kind of schedule. And uh, you know, just a reminder: if you're one of those people that are having a kind of lighter day. Um, Hopefully you can be a friend and a rock for the people who are having a darker day and vice versa. And I think that's how we get through this. Um, Today on the show, we have Tracy Wilk, an amazing uh, woman. We had such a great talk with Tracy. Tracy is a culinary instructor at the Institute for Culinary Education and uh, just a really easy to talk to person. I loved talking with her and I know Bobby did too um the subject matter was really heavy and yet the conversation felt light in a way um and I don't know quite how to describe it I think it's just because of who Tracy is as a person um not that she's like a light person or or a dark person she's just one of those people that's similar I really felt like I really connected with her personally because um, one of those people who who uses humor to connect uh, no matter what you're talking about, and um, it made for a really good talk. Uh, So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Tracy, and hang in there, and again, please reach out out to us, processing at heritageradionetwork.org with your listener letters, um, any kind of any feelings you might want to share. Um, if you're interested in being a guest on Processing, we are booking, um, again via, uh, you know, virtual chats, but chats nonetheless. So, um, enjoy our talk with Tracy. Okay. Bye. So we're here with Tracy Wilk. Tracy. Hi. Hi. I have to say, because this is a podcast and no one can see, but you are wearing the most amazing jacket that I've ever seen. Can you describe to our listeners what your jacket looks like?
3: Absolutely. I'm wearing a tri-jersey because my dad was a four-time Ironman, but it's Ben and Jerry's themed, so it's half-baked ice cream.
2: It's amazing. It's really cool. It's really funny. We actually had a family friend on as one of our first guests, her name is Kathy Bodley, and she kind of told the story of right after her husband Michael died, she went to go get a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and she said, there I was, and I was in bed, I took it into bed with me, and I realized this is my first menage a trois, me, Ben, and Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) She's very funny, so. But yeah, thanks for joining us. So, you grew up in Miami, Florida. I did. Interesting. I know a couple things about Miami. I know the Deuce. Do you know the Deuce? That great dive bar, the Deuce? And La Sandwichery.
3: That one I know, yeah.
2: So across from La Sandwichery is this place, the Deuce. I've only been to Miami a couple times, but I really liked it. And some great thrifting, too.
3: Not at all what I would describe Miami as. (laughs) The
2: the experiences (laughs) I had in Miami, sandwiches, dive bars, and thrifting, Maybe I was actually just still in Brooklyn. Well, what do you, what, what was your memory since I've only been twice, maybe you could tell us what it was like growing up there.
3: Very suburban. Um, just like very, in a good way, like normal. Um, we lived in the suburbs. My parents worked. I went to school. They took us to things after school, just very normal, which sounds weird to say, but true.
2: Yeah. What'd your parents do for a living?
3: My dad was a physical therapist. Um, My mom had multiple careers out of her own choice. Um, At first, she was a stay at home mom. Then, she was a media specialist. And then, she managed my parents. They co owned a running store together.
2: Oh, wow. And what about your dad?
3: He was a physical therapist. Oh,
2: physical therapist, right, of course. Um, Amazing. So, how did that, how did food come in the picture? Because we're going to talk about later how you are in food, but how did, what was their relationship? What was the family relationship with food growing up?
3: So my parents were both a little bit of the hippie generation. They were super into feel good, eat good, workout, health is wealth kind of vibe. So my dad was a pescatarian and my mom was just a health nut. We had like no cookies or candies in my house at all. So when I was younger, if I wanted sweets, I had to make them.
2: Interesting. Did they let you make them?
3: Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my parents used to, every Saturday night, go out on a date. It was like their weekly ritual. And every time my parents would go out, they'd have a babysitter, watch me and my sister, kind of pretty normal. But I would kind of make my friends bake with me. And my mom and dad would walk back in through the garage. And my dad would just like kind of smile. You could like feel it. And my mom would just sigh and be like, again, what did you make? she was against the sweets or that you were no more so because I made a mess because I was like eight years old right right. (laughs) and because then she would eat it so my mom was a health nut but it's because she needs some kind of control or she'll eat everything
2: right interesting so what was that like for you how did that kind of translate with your own relationship with food
3: I definitely call it an art of rebellion Mm -hmm. I was a really good kid I, I mean I definitely gave my mom like any Jewish mother-daughter relationship, I gave her some struggles. <laughs> but I was overall, like, a good kid. Yeah. Um, but this was kind of my rebellion. Yeah, I was like, oh, you're not going to keep sweets in the house? I'm going to make them. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sneaky. We've <laughs> learned more about you. <laughs> how
2: is that, though, Mom, as a as a parent? How does it feel mm-hmm. trying to inform, like, the nutrition kind of aspect with your kids? Well, because it's a, it's a fine line, right? Because on the one hand, you do want your kids to be healthy. On the other hand, you don't want to... Develop, you know, kind of weird things Rigid, about you don't want to have rigidity, right. right? So how do you, as how f- did you find that balance? I mean, how did well, you I find th- that to be? As I parents? think all
4: families are different. Yeah, I, I was not as a single parent. I don't feel like I was in the position or had the resources to really instill. The best values around eating. Right. I mean, I really let you eat crap. Yeah, that's true. I (laughs) ate a lot of shit. I ate a lot of... And part of it was because I was a working mom and I was a single mom. And it just, everything, it just all felt like too much. But when you have two parents together who both have the same sense of health and wanting to do healthy things. But I think the balance is about rigidity because we can have good concepts, but if we try to be too rigid you rally against it well, it's absolutely you're yeah.
2: forming like a person right you have a kid you're yeah. like forming this new human to be a part of the world and it is probably very difficult to figure out the best way to do that right
3: absolutely and I think also our concept of food has evolved like right. I grew up in the 90s where it was all about high carb low sugar totally or no high sugar low, um, high carb yeah no low fat. fat yeah yes. fat was the enemy fat was the enemy snack and- wells. I had a lot of snack wells in my life. I bet. Um, And now, I think in 2020, the word is intuitive eating. Right. And it's such a difference of, like, the world I was in.
4: Yes. Right.
3: Again, rigidity about that, you know, about
4: concepts. Definitely.
3: Your dad was a little bit
2: more flexible sometimes, though?
3: Yeah. Like, he was always the fun guy. So... First of all, he had a lifelong sweet tooth. Mm. So even when we were out to dinner, he would encourage us to order dessert. Okay. Or he would order one and my mom would also want one but wouldn't order one. So she would take <laughs> a bite of his and then eat <laughs>
4: half of it. She was a sweet sneaker.
3: Yeah. <laughs> a secret <laughs> stu- sweet eater. secret, secret, secret. Um, So kind of like it was when we were go out with him, we got dessert. Right. If that makes any sense. Do
2: you feel like that helped you guys form kind of a special bond?
3: I think he kind of, even more than a special bond, it was, like, my way of connecting with him because, like, we both love chocolate. Uh-huh. Right. So that was one thing we both had versus my mom and my sister are the vanilla people. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just how life works. That is. <laughs> it
2: is really interesting. Yeah. You know, I grew up as an only child. I had a stepsister, but really I was an only child, so I don't really understand that family dynamic. The alliances, of, you know, right? Right, yeah. the alliances within a family. So it's really interesting to hear about that and how that kind of all works out. It's really pretty fascinating.
4: So chocolate people, you and your dad were chocolate people. <laughs> we yeah. were. <laughs>
2: yeah. Do you feel like you, you know, describe for us a little bit about your relationship with him, aside from your shared love of, like, sweets and chocolates. Like, how was your relationship growing up?
3: Growing up, we had a great relationship. Um, definitely went through some struggles as I got older and um around the ages of like 15 to 25 I would say yeah. which I feel like a lot of people have issues with their parents at that point
2: Hell yeah that's a hard time <laughs> It's a
3: hard time It's a
2: hard time You know I feel like those that specific time in life between it's the ages hard. of 15 and 25 I've heard people describe it in different ways, but the interesting thing that I always think is like, you kind of are an adult, right? So at 15, you're not an adult, but you're becoming one,
3: right? And you think you are. And you
2: totally (laughs) think you are, right? And you want to be, and it's so natural, just physiologically kind of breaking in at that time. That's kind of what we're supposed to do, right? We move away from our parents, physically most of the time, uh, emotionally. Um, But you're also an idiot. You know what I mean? Totally an idiot. So it's this problem of thinking that you know everything but knowing nothing. And these people who do know a lot and really, in, ge- in the best case scenarios, want to help you with what they've learned, right? You don't want to hear any of it. And and no,
3: it- you think they're the idiots. But like exactly. you're the idiot. You're the
2: idiot.
4: But, you know, in a way, you're really pushing parents away. Kids are pushing yeah, parents absolutely. away. Because they need to separate. Right. And it's actually a uh, physiological, biological uh, spiritual experience of pushing them away, but at the same time wanting them close. How does that yeah. feel as a parent, mom? Well, in a way, when they start to get obnoxious, you want to push them away too.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. But then you pushing them away—it's this double standard. Whereas right. that is frowned upon. Yes, you know what I mean. Uh, but and to hear, even as a kid, hearing that your parent would want to push you away is very hurtful. Oh, I bet it's the worst. It's when the you're worst. 15,
3: you're
4: like, "Who are you?" Yeah. But what I totally. really want to say is that there's this starting you're starting to recognize the person that they are and beside you talked about rebellion what did you what was the word you used it was art of rebellion art Art of rebellion rebellion. yeah you know that's the part that pushes away your parents and that's the part that hurts and that's why you want to push them away it's only the hurt but you also want to start to let them fly let them be So it's this balance of both of you holding and letting go at the same time both Right.
2: so during this kind of time this 10 year span where you were kind of having a little bit of a tough tougher time with your dad. Uh, was there anything that really still kind of connected you together, whether it was food or an activity you did together? Were were there things that kept you bonded?
3: It was as simple as family. The one thing that my dad loved nothing more, and he wouldn't even talk about it, was when the four of us, so me, my mom, my sister, and me were in the same room together. So he had a really rough relationship with his family. Um, So no matter what, even when he probably wanted to kill me when I was about 17... (laughs) He just wanted us in the room. Yeah. So that's uh, like whenever I had a chance to get a day off work, he would be like, fly home, like wow. come down for two days, whatever it is.
2: Yeah. So when did you leave Miami?
3: I left Miami when well, I went to college when I was just turning 18. Okay. Um, went to college four years. It was in Orlando, so kind of still at home, mm-hmm. but not at home. Sure. And then I moved to New York when I just turned 22.
2: And what made you move to New York?
3: So <laughs> when I was 17... I sent home, and you were a chef, and you were a chef, so you understand. I sent home the paperwork to the CIA. And I was like, I'm obviously going to culinary school. But I was 17, so my parents checked my mail, as they should. Like, they (laughs) they got my mail because it was their mailbox. Yeah, (laughs) And my parents were like, what is this shenanigans? And the deal was, if you go to college and you still want to cook, we'll revisit in four years, get a degree. So I got my degree. I studied political science graduated, was ready to go with my job two weeks before. I said, I really want to go to cooking school. Mm. And I remember driving home from my friend's house to, like, have the big conversation. And I sat my mom down, and I was like, I'm going to go to cooking school. And she was like, okay, whatever.
2: (laughs) It was way more, like, lackluster. Oh, that's really funny. You thought it was going to be, like, this big thing. And they're like, sure.
3: Well, they're like, okay, you got your degree. Also, at that point, you are kind of an adult. Totally. Where I think if you just tell your parents no... Like, if your parents told you no, it's just going to get worse. Right. So I think they have to let you be free. Well, that
4: was that individuation again. You were becoming your own person. This is what you wanted to do. It may not have fit into their plan. No, it definitely did not fit into their plan. Why is that? Why didn't they want you to be a chef?
3: So it was multifaceted. Um... It's not the most financially stable career, which they were definitely right on. hundred. I was like, if only I knew that you really had to have money.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then the money that you spend (laughs) on going to culinary school is very hard to earn back. Right.
3: But, you know, I was 22 and I was like, I can do anything. Um, And also my dad, being a physical therapist, knew how hard it was on the body. Mm, That's an interesting point. He, and like now at almost 32, I'm like, you were so right. Totally. Mm -hmm. And you've all stood for many hours and it just breaks your body down. So
4: hard. And the, really lifting
3: and the the lifting and the pushing and 50 pounds of onions over your shoulder. The and slipping, and absolutely. the burns. Yeah. The, the burns. Like I mean, my arms are covered in burns, yeah. and it's something I'm never going to get back.
2: Yeah. Oh, same. I'm completely covered in burns. So <laughs>
3: wow. that was a little bit of the, the issue. Uh-huh. So
2: you went to CIA?
3: No, I went to Natural Gourmet Institute. Oh,
2: nice. Okay. So
3: I decided to follow mom and dad's footstep of yeah. being a little bit of health supportive, mm-hmm. plant-based.
2: Cool. That's yeah. a really good compromise. Did it feel like a good compromise to you to do that?
3: They didn't really get it. Okay, um,
2: so they didn't even give a shit. No.
3: <laughs> they were like, whatever, it seems affordable. Because <laughs> it was cheaper than the other schools. <laughs> um, to amazing. I mean, keep in mind, this was 2010, and like now we're living in the time where everyone knows what the word's plant-based, sure. farm-to-table meat. In 2010 in Florida, everyone was like, what is vegan? Right. So it was a little bit like out there, but I was always kind of like an out there weirdo. Yeah. In a good way.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. I can tell in the best possible (laughs) way.
3: Yeah. So, like, they were like, of course she's going to, like, the weird hippie school.
2: Yeah. Well, you're amongst friends. We're also weird (laughs) weird hippies in this room. So, it makes perfect sense. And you worked in kitchens for a while, right?
3: Yes. I basically just did restaurants from 2010, like, when I was in school. I interned, did all the normal hustle that we, I think we all do. And then I stopped in 2018. Mm. In terms of restaurants, I still cook, but.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a hustle. It's hard. and It's I, tiring. I think, you know, I'm interested to know, like, your take on how the restaurant industry affected you emotionally.
3: Oh, yeah. I think that's a big one.
2: Yeah. And so how did it affect you emotionally?
3: So I didn't even realize, you don't realize when you're in it. Um, I consider myself kind of the last generation of cooks mm. that had it the old school way. Sure. And I- I'm sure both of you know exactly what I mean. 100%. <laughs> so... I, again, it was 2010. So we were paid $10 an hour. You were allowed to intern without, um, being paid, being paid or getting yeah. credit. Like it was just like, whatever, like come work for free, <laughs> uh, different time. And that was kind of how I was brought up in kitchens. And that was everything my dad was afraid of. So when I would call them crying, being like, essentially plates were being thrown at me, not at me directly, but like, yeah, not not at me. They, they were flying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was sympathetic, as was my mom. But they also were kind of like, we told you so. So what did you think was going to happen?
2: Was there any part of you that liked that culture? Because I, you know, I have very mixed feelings personally. This is probably a conversation for just off mine because it's so long. But um, I have a lot of mixed feelings about kitchen life. Right. And I think uh, I don't know if you agree with this, either of you. But that people who are attracted to working in kitchens are attracted to a certain level of violence, a certain level of craziness, a certain adrenaline, 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 but also like intensity. And it is very interesting that in this current climate, which I think we're making shifts towards a more normal and better life for folks. However, there is there has long been a place for, quote unquote, misfits for roughnecks for people who like a little bit of, or need a little bit of violence in their life in, certain, in a certain way that isn't actual violence upon other people. You know, right.
3: I, I don't condone violence, Of but... course,
2: but it is an interesting, it is a really interesting kind of a place where like you can kind of be in this very unique environment that has a lot of hostility and some people like need it. And some people enjoy being part of it as a spectacle. Did you feel that way at all?
3: I like the spectacle of it. I like the show. um, And I like that I fit in. Like, a kitchen is a place Mm -hmm. where if you work well and, like, you know, you have a good night on the line, like, you go out for a shift drink. And everyone is friends. Right. And I think I really was drawn to that family. Right. Right. I had a really good family growing up. I can't sit here and say anything otherwise. But we were a small family. Mm. And I was also, in a good way, very different than my parents and my sister. Right. So I think finding a family like that, I was really attracted to.
2: Yeah, I'm just always really interested to speak to, like, former kitchen people uh, and chefs and industry folks about what it is that attracts them to this insane lifestyle, right? And so now I think it's a different – but you just mentioned the old guard. Like, now I think it's a very different thing that attracts people. I think it's the beauty – and I think it w- it's always been the beauty of food in some way, right. too, But it's different now, you know, because I I just want to I think it's just interesting as part of your story to see how you feel about that, you know.
3: No, and I think that's actually one of the reasons I had to switch is I was no longer attracted to the spectacle like right. you said i was like this is all st-. not that it's stupid and i don't think it's stupid no, no. but it's, all it is a little the, stupid though sometimes. <laughs> i mean sometimes throwing a plate over a misfire burger is actually pretty stupid it's a
2: it's a very interesting and uh in that environment socially acceptable way to have a violent fit of rage
3: right that's it totally you can have a hissy fit and no one blinks an eye you can throw a pan at somebody i think and it's, it's
4: about the intensity Right, right, but it's, it's so it's the odd. fire. Think yeah. of how hot the kitchen is. Yeah. So it's hot. the fire. Yeah. And it's the fire in us. Yeah. See, I don't right. see I mean I did, I haven't worked in uh, restaurant kitchens. I had a catering business. It was just different. But and so it's a completely different restaurant. Yeah. And, but the hard work, the intensity, the digging in. I feel like that's what's what's draw what, what draws people.
2: Yeah. So your family was close growing up. You grew up in Miami. You came to New York. You went to culinary school. Can you tell us a little bit about what, between then and now, what is your f- current family kind of structure like now?
3: So my dad died in 2017, which I'm sure we'll dig into, yeah. but a really almost 50% of the story there is my mom moved to New York immediately after. Yeah. So my whole family shifted because now we're all up here. That's wild. So people are like, oh, you're a New Yorker. I'm like, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, but you said your parents had originally been from yes, my parents the were area. from New
3: York, which was a large a large reason why my mom wanted to move back here. Sure. She always did.
2: Were they from the city?
3: Uh, my mom was from Brooklyn. Oh, so okay, great. In her hometown. Oh, and My nice. dad was Long Island. Oh,
2: yeah. where in Do you know where in Long Island?
3: You know I do. we to me. We're
2: from Huntington. So not right, there. Okay. okay, perfect.
3: It's on the tip of my tongue. It will come to me.
2: No problem. Uh, well, f- you know, Islanders, Islanders uh, unite. Um, so yeah, you mentioned your dad died in 2017. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Sure. I actually think it has a lot to do with cooking. Okay. Enough. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So, um, in 2017, I had the opportunity with my restaurant group to move to Aspen for about six months for the winter season to open a restaurant with them. And I went la di It was great. Not really, but we'll not yeah. get into that here. Sure. <laughs> and, um, finally at the end of the season, my executive chef was like, please take two weeks off. You have so much PTO accrued. Like, we don't know what to do with you. You've worked here for five years. Please take time off. Yeah. And I was like very reluctant because I didn't want to use it for, for nothing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I spent the first week of it in New York, doctor's appointments, you know, boring stuff. And then the second week I decided I would go home and spend time with my family. I had my flight booked for Sunday. I actually changed it to Tuesday because two work opportunities came up, and like a chef, I couldn't say no. And um, on my flight home on that Tuesday, my dad committed suicide. And I found out as I drove up to my street. Oh, my
4: goodness. And
3: I incorporate kind of that timeline because I think it shows some of the trauma. It's
2: it's incredible. I mean, the first thing, you know, with changing the flight and stuff like that, I would imagine that initially, and I, I hope that you've been able to work through some of this, but, you know, I can relate in my own times with my own dad before he passed in times when I didn't go see him or I missed right. a date or something like that. Was that something that weighed on you initially? Like, why did I change the date? Or
3: You know, I think there will always, if any, anyone or any listeners, so to speak, have experienced death by suicide, There is always a sliver of anger that I have accepted as a part of my story. Yes. And it's one of the reasons like I wanted to leave kitchens is Mm -hmm. because they're so hostile. I was like, this isn't going to go away. Like, let me leave this environment. Um, so there definitely is anger towards that. Of course, you know, part of it is I think that I was there for my mom, which was great. Um, it was great that I took a week off and I have to stress about it. Mm. (laughs) Like I didn't have to fly up for service. Um, but it was really hard. So
4: what, what happened? I mean, how did this happen? Were there any signs? or
3: You know, of course everyone says looking back. Um, essentially, my dad definitely dealt with depression his entire life. Mm-hmm. A lot of family stuff that really makes sense. Uh, difficult childhood, all of that, mental illness, all, all that going together. But mm-hmm. he also struggled a lot with his health. Being an Iron Man, being a person that was a physical therapist, that ran marathons, his body wasn't just functioning like it was supposed to. And I think that only deepened his depression. Yes, such a big loss for him. Huge loss. And he, I mean, I was probably eight years old or younger, and both him and my mom, because my mom was also a nurse. I forgot to mention that was her first career. Right. Um, He always said, if like me or mom are on life support, cut it. Wow. And we were, me and my sister were young when they told us that, which I actually think was a good, honest conversation, but If his body wasn't working, he didn't want to be here. It said a lot about how he saw himself. Absolutely. Like, he didn't want to be spoon-fed. He didn't want to be in a wheelchair, which I can respect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's still a deep loss.
2: A very deep loss and a very
3: complicated loss. So complicated. Like, the hardest thing that's been for me, and I think my whole family, is you hear death by suicide and everyone's like, oh, mentally ill. Right. And we're like, "Mm, it's not that easy.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more. Can you expand upon that a little bit?
3: I just think that first of all, one of the reasons I wanted to come talk tonight was mental illness is not talked about enough in our society, and it's. I think you just get a a label. Maybe you take a medicine, and that's what you have.
4: Or it's black and white. It's black and white. Exactly. Or
3: Or, you know, if you suffer from anxiety and you're having a bad day, you're having an anxiety attack. It's not that easy. Like, so um, for me, it really brings up the conversation that I don't even like to focus on why he died. I like it to focus on how he lived because it doesn't really matter. Yeah. He decided to take his own life. Mm -hmm. We had to pick up and... It was his life to choose. It was his life. The unfortunate part is when you're a family, Mm -hmm. you know, my mother had a life with him. I, me and my sister, but you have to just keep moving on. Yeah. Were you
4: able to get that right away or was it, how was it initially when you (sighs) first realized what happened?
3: You know both me and my mom at the beginning, my sister was very different. They were very, very, very close and had a very different relationship. So she processes very differently and it's her story to tell. So I don't like to speak for her. But me and my mom both said we were shocked, but not surprised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard. I think for people to hear whenever we said that to anyone we met, they would be like, oh no. And I think then they start thinking about their own life. I think a lot of people with grief the second you say, my dad died, they're like, oh, I know how you feel. Right. And you're like, mm, do you?
2: Right. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, empathy and sympathy are different. Um, and having experienced something yourself is very different.
4: You also had the trauma to deal with. I mean, I'm sure oh, you can tell there's a difference between grief and trauma.
3: Oh, 100%. And then to come off opening a restaurant that was not successful, mm. then to... Basically, two weeks after my dad died, I went into the opening of the next restaurant, mm-hmm. which was my choice, and I'm happy that I had work to be busy with. Mm-hmm. But the whole year becomes just a cluster of trauma.
4: There's a price to pay for everything. So it sounds like one of your coping ways was to pour yourself into work. Oh, and that's what, what I've what always done my whole do, life. But there's always a price to pay for everything. So you think there was a, a delayed grief, or did it affect you that you...
3: I don't know if it was delayed grief. Um, I think because I was in restaurants, I actually remember talking to my director of operations right after. And I was like, yo, I'm going right into therapy. Like, I will not be able to work service (laughs) if I don't get help. Totally. (laughs) Because I already had aggression and, like, was already the chef, like, screamer. So I was like, this isn't going to work. Right. Um, But I think it's just ever-evolving. Like, I don't, you, you lost your dad pretty close to I, when I did. I did.
2: too, yeah. I lost my dad in
3: 2018. So pretty, pretty recent yeah. in terms and like, it's just, it's never over.
2: It's never over. No, grief is definitely a meandering road that <laughs> at times has uh, really amazing clearings and you see great right. views and other times it gets very woody and dark. Good and way to put absolutely. It, You know, it's not really a linear path, unfortunately. Yeah, Although I think that you learn as time goes on you learn the shortcuts to get to the clearing a little bit better rather than feel so lost. Like you begin to draw your map. It becomes not that you never get lost or that the road right. never is murky and dark, but you do know a little bit better. Like I know that if I go down here, right, I think I can probably see a clearing. You know, Or I mean? like
3: you, like if you see something or hear something, you have a cry and like you're okay again. Correct. Yeah. So it's not as dark. I just don't think I realized how traumatic it Mm -hmm. was until probably two years after
2: it's deeply traumatic and I mean I would assume I'm sorry to cut you off Bobby but I would assume that you know kind of what we were talking about earlier with just dynamics with parents and how it's normal for them for you to want to push them away and that feels very normal and it's very abnormal and it feels very bad when they want to push you away and one thing I'm really curious about this because I have not Talk to anyone before whose parent had committed suicide. Um, it is obviously not about you, and I'm sure through oh, therapy yeah. you have done a lot of work to realize that. However, I I'm just saying from my own point of view, I would think it would be extremely hard to get to that point where you can accept that because it's must. I would assume, and I want to want you to tell me if I'm wrong, that your initial feelings, your parent, you know, deciding to leave. Is such a specific
4: trauma. Absolutely. And how could you do this to us as if it's right. a choice? Right. That's the big question. Right. Is it a choice? So Absolutely.
2: How, how was that part of your journey in being able to kind of process yourself as an individual away from his choice to take his own life?
3: So that's... I don't know if that's something I dealt with in therapy because I still... I mean, like I said, we're almost at three years. Like, I'm still mad about it. Yeah. And I'm not sure when i won't be and i'm just okay that i'm mad about it that's great i'm okay that me my mom my sister i'm going to use quotes even though no one in the podcast can see it we weren't enough i know it wasn't about us but it's one of the fears and it's it's you know there's always the lingering thoughts my mom wants to see her future grandchildren god willing yeah that wasn't enough for him so that's really really hard But mm-hmm. I like to just focus now on like what we do have.
2: Totally. Which is?
3: I got my mom. She's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> she's a lunatic, but she's really cool. <laughs> um, I have a sister who we're in a different place with our relationship than I think we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And I have a brother-in-law who, if anything, has just been an outstanding partner to my sister.
2: Yeah. That's a lot to be, a lot to be happy about.
3: So when you said that you're
4: focusing more on what was rather than what isn't. Yes. So when you focus back on your life of you th- your dad, what are the things that help you um, handle him not being here in physical presence?
3: Focusing on the good. I really don't try, I think the first year I spent so much time focusing on the mental illness, the whys, the, all of that uncovering, and now I just try to focus on the good memories. That's why I think I could wear his jacket today.
2: It's awesome. So what are some of those good memories?
3: I think we had a good childhood. Yeah. Um a lot of it comes down to food for me because I really like food. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so what tell us some some of the specifics if you've got them.
3: Um I think something that makes my family special was our Friday night like rituals.
2: Oh I love I loved this. You wrote this to us, actually. I'm so happy you're talking about this.
3: So every Friday, and I literally mean every Friday of my entire life, um, we went to a restaurant called Anna Capri. It's a local if you're from Miami, you know what I'm talking about. Um and they knew our order. They knew our table. They they just knew us. So, when I had the same order every week half minestrone, half big ZD, wow. my dad usually got the same thing, ironically. He's probably the one that told me to get it when I was little and then I left it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and you identified with him. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Especially with food. He yeah. had way better choice than my mom did.
4: <laughs> what was your mom's order? <laughs>
3: She usually changed to order. And oh. it, was probably, it depends if she was running. She did a lot of race walking. So okay. if she was carb loading or was she like healthy Weight Watchers that week. <laughs> got it, got it, got but it. But the ritual of going the every great. Friday night, every same Friday. table, same time, yeah. same yes. order is. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. And even when I got into high school and at that point you're pushing your parents away. Yeah. You're so busy.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, they would be like, you can go out Friday night, but come to Anna Capri first. Yeah. That was like the deal.
2: I love it. Building rituals with a family, is very it's very special. Absolutely. It's grounding.
4: It's yeah. grounding, it's exactly. A, it's a home separate from your home. So do you do that now? Do you have rituals in your life that help ground you?
3: <sighs> no, I think that's something we've uh-huh. really struggled with, uh-huh. actually. That was probably one of the biggest transitions. Tell us more. Um, we sold our house basically right after my dad died. My mom moved up here. Mm-hmm. We kind of got rid of everything in Miami. And figuring out what our holidays were, yes. mm-hmm. were Were so hard because my mom was I almost feel like trying to become the super mom of being like come over for the Jewish holidays I'll cook and we're like mom you're like 63 and sometimes your knee hurts right we'd rather you not like we can do it but she I think kind of wanted to make up for it yes because she just wanted us to be a family yeah and we weren't there yet right um so so you're saying you had to let go of
4: rituals that you had absolutely you had to let go of the home that you had and the family structure that you had. So what did you hold on to? I always talk about what we hold on to and what we let go of. So what did you hold on to?
3: We've, we had, I think we drank it all now, a really big wine collection that my dad left. Oh. So we drank a lot of that. Uh-huh. And every time I would go over to my mom's apartment, she'd be like, we'll open the good stuff. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Um, and kind of like a rule of Jewish holidays are with my mom which we're not even very religious, just to start there. Yeah. It's like by Jewish holidays, I mean like Hanukkah and like maybe Passover. Right. It's the food and the tradition. It's the food and the of tradition. The and it's, I think, mom having her, her kids home. Yeah. yeah. And that made her feel grounded. And then when she is grounded, we're grounded.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm just really, I'm trying to process the thought of the loss of a parent to suicide because it's so complicated. And, and I think where I can relate to it, even though my dad died of cancer. And I'm just interested in making this connection, I guess, is oftentimes when somebody dies, right? And I know that there's all kinds of different feelings, but I guess I'm just saying the most typical thing. Someone, you know, a family member dies and the overarching feeling is sadness and missing. You know what I mean? And then when you integrate anger into Mm. that, uh, it's really, it's really interesting. when my dad was dying, I was very angry at him. And I often ask people if they could go back and do something different. What would you learn? I would do that differently. I was angry because my dad was very overweight and he Mm. had not taken care of himself and he hadn't accepted that he was dying. So the last kind of portion of his life and even like in the couple of weeks after he died, I was angry, Yeah. you know? And in one way, my anger kept me a little bit from my sadness as a barrier. And then when it dissipated, the sadness came in and Mm -hmm. I'm... I'm just sharing this experience because I'm interested to know how the anger element of this loss kind of played into everything.
3: I mean, I still, I'm still sad, but I'm still angry. So yeah. to me, it's almost like still both yeah. there.
4: What are you angry about?
3: Angry you just- that it's like a part of my life. It's such a heavy weight. It's a, burden yeah. that you had to it's a huge burden. Yeah. That's what my mom gets really angry about because he left us to. No, we don't, like, deal with my mom. She's not at all, like, a sad widow. She's an amazingly fierce, yeah. like, woman. But we have to help my mom a little bit more now. So she gets mad and then I get mad and everyone's mad. <laughs> you know what's hard? Um, death to suicide is
4: it's what they call um, a disenfranchised loss, which means that it's not regular. Right. You know, people sometimes are afraid to ask you questions or right. ask oh, you yeah. about it, how
3: you are. They avoid it. It's the worst thing when somebody asks, how did they die? And you, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they make the most awkward, painful face. And I'm like, well, that's not helping. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you had also mentioned to us that, um, a now I want to mention you're 31 now, right? And this happened when you were 28. Yes. So at that age, anyway, you're kind of amongst, you know, usually the earliest of, of your friend group to kind of lose a parent
3: oh i was
2: right so that in itself can be alienating because as much as people love you especially in your 20s it's very hard to know how to deal with that and people are not really accustomed to it i think as people get older you're in your 30s and 40s there's more people who have had loss you you're just older so you kind of know how to kind of i mean generally some people still don't know yeah it's very hard no matter how old you are um to deal with other people's losses and know how to act, but I would imagine being 28 and being surrounded by other folks that are in their 20s and 30s, that was probably hard on its own. And then for to ask of those same people, and you know, we do not talk about su- about death in general, but suicide particularly has such a stigma attached to it. It's right. like, ooh, you know, don't and for for reasons that make sense and for reasons that don't make sense. Because you know what I mean?
3: Unresolved things, there's answers right. you'll never know. That Jewish. was the first thing the rabbi. Again, I'm keep saying so much Jewish. I'm like, I just want to clarify, I'm like not religious. <laughs> we're, in the,
4: we're in the same place.
3: That's yeah. where yeah. But we did have a rabbi come for the service, which I'm happy we did that. Yeah. But when he came over to prepare for the service, the first thing he said was, "Don't try to find the why." Yes. Mm-hmm. And the irony was, my family actually felt like we did understand the why, mm-hmm. but we didn't understand like all the layers of the why. If that yes. kind of makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Which that's where the anger comes in. Totally.
2: Did you feel, though, being 28-year-old woman, did you feel alone and alienated oh my in God. your grief?
3: Absolutely. And if I could go back on time, first of all, I would, like, have a sign that says, like, I'm angry at the world. If you piss me off, get out of my way. Yeah. So there would be that. Totally. Um, and I would learn to communicate better. Yeah. But what I have learned with grief, which I imagine you have learned, and I assume at this point in your life you've learned – is the only people that matter are the ones that show up. Absolutely. And if they don't show up for this, they're not going to show up for anything else.
2: It's very true. Oh, it's very interesting. I have a friend, one of my best friends, and she has a lot of trauma that she's endured in her life. And she's a wonderful friend and a wonderful person, but she's not the first person that's going to call you if something bad happens. And I, well, I took it really personally at mm. first. And we are chatting about it the other day because a friend of hers was having a situation with a new baby. And she said, they have enough to deal with. They probably don't want to hear from me. And I thought that was so interesting because it was just such a singular perspective about how she really believed that they wouldn't want to hear from her.
4: Well, that has to do with the lenses of perception that we all view things differently through a specific lens that we have. Right. We don't really know what the other person's lens is. We can assume and we've, we've imagined and that's what you're saying. So it's somebody that so... doesn't respond to a terrible thing that's happened in your life, you might assume either they don't care, or... right? And you don't really know the reasons why. Because we all view things like your friend you were speaking of, Zara. Yeah. Probably her early traumas keep her from wanting to. It's get just involved. too not hard thinking for her. Yeah, yeah, I think hard. it exactly. triggers her own exactly.
2: trauma. To exactly. be honest, that's right. That being said, it's still okay to be like these are the people that I need. I need people right. in my life that will show up for me. That's That feels, I've learned that life is short and that right. I need to spend it around people who align with my needs. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like that's also okay. But it is something that I think is interesting because, you know, in, in my experience with grief too, there was people who... Didn't reach out or, like, reached out to me with normal life stuff, like, immediately right. after. You're like, I don't care. And
3: I was like, fuck <laughs> off. And then I'm very I, busy, actually. Right. I was like,
2: I don't care about right. whatever you're saying. But then I also realized that this is not a personal affront yes. to me. Right. They just don't get no. it. And it's not even their fault. It's, like, society's fault.
3: Right. And that's why I like to talk about it. Because... Yep what I think, I think a really common one that a lot in like the grief community, we all talk about is say their name. Mm -hmm. People say a lot. I think, Oh, we don't want to bring it up. Like Mm -hmm. we're thinking about it. Like I know the day of my dad's death front back forward. I know where I was like Mm -hmm. you saying the word dad doesn't like trigger me. Yeah. You actually not saying the word dad triggers me more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. So I think that's a really, really important conversation to have.
2: I agree. Um, I'm also curious about uh, your, and I don't I hope this comes out correctly, about your opinions about suicide before your dad committed suicide versus after. Have they changed? I think we all, as people, have thought about, not necessarily considered suicide on ourselves, but right. definitely thought about the, the act of suicide, what it means, what we think of it. We have opinions about... I would never do that. I think it's terrible or I think I understand it. Like where did you fall on that before and after? That's a good question.
3: I think I'm just smarter about it. If that makes any sense. Um, Not to like call myself smart.
2: (laughs) You are smart Mm -hmm. for sure.
3: (laughs) I think I understand. I'm more compassionate. Yes. And I think I'm more willing to speak up about mental health. Mm. So, I mean, I'll go back to a kitchen two years ago. If someone or not two years ago now, three years ago, if someone was like, Oh, I have a lot going on at home. This and this is happening. That's why I'm late. I probably like would have not cared. And I would have been like, get your ass on the line. And now I'll use an example today from work. Um, one of the people I worked with was sharing that she was really tired because she had an anxiety attack last night. Mm. And I truly meant to her, as I said, do you just want to go home and go to sleep? And not in a condescending way. I genuinely meant that to be like, your health is more important. I can finish this myself. So you became sensitized. A hundred percent. You know, sometimes
4: with trauma, we can become desensitized as a way to protect ourselves. Right. But for you, it, it, within the trauma, you became more sensitive to other people. I think
3: more sensitive and but less yourself. afraid to say something. Yes. Because, yes. like, I now live my life, and I'm not perfect in any way, but I always try to be kind now because you don't know what anyone's going through. Yes, it's so true. I always quote this. I'm, I'm probably said it on the
4: podcast several times but Janis Joplin's line, "Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose." Yep. So it sounds like you have this new freedom in a way.
3: I do. I really don't care about nonsense anymore, which is like the best feeling. It's
2: very liberating. I, it's I really It's so li- like mean.
3: going through grief, the best part is like Yeah. If you don't like me, cool. If I upset you, cool.
2: Totally. And what I think is interesting about that, which can sometimes, at least in my experience, and not just with, when I was uh, in my very early 20s, I was in an accident, in a bus accident, and went off a cliff, and I almost died. And I think that's what sparked it, but it definitely continued after losing my dad more intensely of, like, kind of that, like, yeah, I'm just I'm just in this life, and, like, I'm not trying to mince words. I'm not trying to play games. Like, I'm here for reality. Right, no games. For reality. Yeah. And it's really hard because it's, it's it's very natural to feel that way. And you connect with certain people in that way. But then there's times when you meet people who you really care about. Uh, I've found it in relationships a lot. And you are then dealing with them. And they haven't had that same experience, right? right? And they don't understand the way you feel immediacy. The they don't, urgency
4: for life. The urgency, the urgency for that's life. That's such a good
2: way of yeah. putting it, by that's by a,
3: that's like That should be a quote. It's, I it, love that.
2: It's really great. And that is a very complicated dynamic Super complicated. because no one's right in that, right? You're just, right. you, I mean, you feel right, right? Like I feel right. righteous in the urgency of for life, which is now a new shirt we need to make.
4: Yeah. <laughs> did you hear the story on our, one of our first podcasts, the ones that we interviewed each other about the tie, and the strawberry. Yes, and... I did. Well, that's what it's about, right? Exactly. So there you are in this urgency of life. You can't right. up is a danger, down is a danger. Right. right. Do you so go? what do you do? However, do you shrink in fear or do you reach out for life?
2: Totally. But it really does take having an experience where you see how fragile it is. And if you don't have it, it's very difficult. Well, it can be knock you
4: scared p- or it can knock you brave. Yeah. Right.
2: It's, but it's so it's, I found that to be one of the hardest things because in my own experiences, that's one of the things I'm most grateful for. Like I've been through some hard shit right. before and I'm like, wow, I actually am really taking away a sense of gratitude from these experiences that's how
3: i feel like as much as it is really really hard and like no i would not wish what i've been through on anybody and if someone gave me a deck of cards i wouldn't pull it again sure but like there's there's a name for it post-traumatic growth oh wow another (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt
4: but like now
3: i'm just like like a lot of i find a i teach full-time now Mm -hmm. and i teach adults and i meet people of all ages and one of the biggest compliments i get after my class is from Folks older than me, and they're like, "You just have a really like, like a good view on life," and that to me is like the best compliment you from do. somebody older than you. Yeah. And I usually say like, "I've, I've been through some some heavy shit." <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And they're like, "Wow, but you're still like, you still have your life together," and I'm like, "Because either you you sink or you swim."
4: Yeah, hundred percent. And I always call that it's about digging deep. You right. know, in order to pull up at your home and find out what happened that day, you had to dig so so deep into your soul. You had to dig to the bottoms. Right, right, and when you do that, you bring up
3: all your richness, you bring up all right. your wealth,
4: it's, and it, then I, you—I think
3: you leave behind, you push down like all the nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> totally. exactly
2: It's really interesting. It's kind of like—and maybe this is an odd comparison to make—but it's kind of like, do you watch Stranger Things?
3: No, I don't. All right.
2: So it's kind of like on Stranger Things. Like, the characters go, a couple of them get sucked into an underworld called the Upside Down, where everything's really fucked up and crazy and, like, (laughs) scary, and it's full of monsters, and everything's very dark, but you can then come back up to the normal life. But you're kind of, like, changed, and kind of only the other characters who have been to the Upside Down tend to, like, they all relate to each other, they're all friends, and they're in this thing together, and the rest of the town is kind of, like out of it and they're right. all just going along with regular life and like do 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 and like everyone's fine and i really i don't know if the creators of this show like tried to do this but the that metaphor is
4: metaphor for life
2: right. right and so it's
1: like well,
2: as much as you i don't know you i i guess i'm just kind of focusing on that frustration though of like when you're you want to relate to someone who hasn't been through it, and you both kind of want to relate to each other, but sometimes it really does feel like there's that missing piece. Have you felt that with friends or anyone? I have.
3: I It's something I struggle with, in my, especially in my mom, who really wants to make sure this is not, like, which I it's not the story of my life, yeah. but, you know, the, I think a mom really is concerned this is going to be, like, the tattoo. Yeah. That is so love That's so sweet. Yeah. And, but, like, I, I said to her, I was like, when I... I'm single currently, and I was like, if I meet someone, I do think they're going to have to have gone through some kind of loss to relate. And my mom was like, you can't date someone based or not if they've had someone die. And I'm
4: like,
1: yeah.
3: kind of think I can. Like, yeah.
4: Except there's all kinds of loss in life. There and is. And sometimes yeah. it doesn't Absolutely. come through death. Absolutely. There are many sure. kinds of disappointments and losses and… Or traumas. Traumas and tragedies and… Totally.
3: But it's an outlook. I think it, is. it would be someone that has yeah. shifted that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't mean I'm perfect. I still have bad days at work. Yeah. I still get upset about nonsense. Like my TV breaks, I still call like RCN screaming at them. Like I'm not of
2: course, a course, soul. But it is, a, it is a, an opportunity to be more mindful, I think. Yes. You know, and we can lose that and that's okay. You don't have and to, to be, be more grateful. Yeah. Right. My, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a wild, it's a wild, wild experience. Well, I always well, tell this
4: story to my clients about um, years back, I was running a bereavement group for um, spouses and there was this young man, he was in his 30s, and his wife had died suddenly, and he had three little kids. And at the same time, Oprah Winfrey was talking about the gratitude journal. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, we talked about it in the group, and he said, nah, I'll try it. So he went home, and the first day, all he could say was, I put my feet down, and there was one slipper at the bottom of the bed. Mm -hmm. And then the second day, he said, I had to do 10 loads of laundry, and there was a quarter cup of laundry detergent. But he started to become grateful for what was instead of what wasn't and it helped him through gratitude you know move to a place where he could see more clearly these three beautiful girls he has right it was a it was a wonderful story
2: it's so complicated and it's so nice when you know grief can be such a dark haze that it is nice when you feel like you can get glimmers of hope like that and you know that sometimes doesn't happen right away but that's a beautiful yeah so you kind of covered this already but we do ask everyone at the end of the show um if you could tell yourself something at, and i'm visualizing you at a certain point that you've described but it can be any point but i'm visualizing you in the car when you get that call and you pull onto your street and you found out that your dad had died um i like to think of asking people of this in the very beginning when you knew nothing when you're blind when you're like i have you know basically just born into this experience Uh, If you could have given yourself a note, if you could have given yourself some kind of advice that you thought would have helped you through the process or something you know now, what would that be?
3: You'll be okay. I love that. Keep trucking.
2: That, like, is very touching. And it's so direct and so simple. (laughs)
3: I'm my father's daughter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's so deep, though. Sometimes I write myself notes that say literally that, that say you'll be okay and just stick them around to remember that.
3: It's true, it is true. Like we're all gonna be okay at some point. Exactly. Yeah, that's really right. That's that's the lake.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. We had um, we had a guest on that kind of said the same thing about that she had written herself a note before she left to go on to ultimately find out that her husband had passed away, and basically re- wrote herself a note that said, "You'll be okay." I'm paraphrasing. She said it much more eloquently, but like, you know, really. I mean, it's such a... Because then you get in it, and it
4: feels sometimes like you will not be okay. Well, I've been telling the story this week. I often tell similar stories all week long, and I don't know why. Because I have 50 clients, and they're all different. But somehow the story fits. Yeah. So this week, it was the story of the cup of salt.
2: Oh, I love that. Please share that with us. And the
4: cup of salt is... If you imagine you have a big cup of salt, and there's a glass of water. And you take the salt, and you pour it into the water, and you stir it around, and you try to swallow it. It is so... Bitter. It is so hard to handle. But if you take the same cup of salt, and you go down to the freshwater lake, and you sprinkle the salt into the lake, and then you take a cup of water, you can handle it, you can manage it. So when things happen to us at first, it's like the cup of salt. It seems like it is impossible to bear. But the perspective you were talking about, when you tell yourself it's gonna be okay, that's the lake. Right. Because we get that bigger perspective. And when we talk about grief, and we hear other stories, That's the importance of community because we realize that we can survive. Others survive. You hear their story. It's impossible to think that they could do it. But here they are sharing with you. And so that's the importance of you being on the show today and sharing the things that you have. I hope that it reminds other people about the perspective and that, yes, you do survive.
2: I want to... Say one more thing that i've been thinking about a lot lately which seems really appropriate right now we say this a lot right we talk about helping other people survive you survive i want to pose the question of why it is important what's the value in survival to you to either of you i mean i'm not saying there is no value but what's your personal value of survival you know what i mean because i feel like that's so different Everyone everyone's like you can survive this you can get through this and i think for a lot of people who might be suffering they might say, why do I want to survive? What would I want to well, survive at for? Well, first you ask
4: that question. You do. You don't. I mean, I don't know if that's what you felt, but sometimes in the beginning you don't really know why. Right. You act as if it matters, and in the beginning it doesn't, but it kind of catches up with you that it matters. What Life does that mean matters. to you?
3: Well, when, I'm going to flip it, if yeah. I may. What I did not like when I was really in it and I didn't want to survive was when people said, you're so strong, you're so brave, how are you doing this? You don't want to survive, yeah. But you survive because of the impact of others, right? You survive because other people are holding you up, right. and then you hold somebody else up, and then it keeps kind of waving through, right? I had a friend, um, a childhood, my like childhood best friend, lost her father over, over Thanksgiving, and the first book I per- purchased after my dad died was Option B, which uh-huh. you haven't read it. You all should read it. Of course, love it. <laughs> the Three and Ps. It's a great book. And when I heard her father died, I was like, oh, my God, what do I buy? What do I do? Like, what do I send? Go through all that. And I decided on instead, I'm just going to send her a note and I'm going to send her the book. And I gave her my copy. That's lovely. And knowing that that might help her made me feel like my chapter was a little bit more closed.
2: See, that's where I was also my brain was going when I asked myself that question. And the times when I was at my darkest and I felt like, well, yes, I can survive this, but, but why, you know? Do you have an answer now? I do. What is the answer? I think I'm circling around the same thing you were saying, which is that above all else, above the possibility to have joyous experiences and potentially create new life and see new parts of the world and eat new things and all the things that, you know, you can experience. I think for me that the value of my own survival um, is to participate in a, a, community survival, right? Um, for instance, doing this podcast, like at the times when I was like, I don't really feel like I want to go on, you know, I'm feeling so desperate and so purposeless that, you know, being able to do this show and meet people like you and make connections and just help other people get through. Right. So that, so that in that you can enjoy the little nuggets of joy in life. So you can create things to bring other people yes. little nuggets of joy. Because in their life
4: is about survival. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. There are losses yeah. all through life. Yeah. There are disappointments and we fall and it's all about that. So we're teaching each other Yeah. how to get through this life of survival. Yeah.
2: I just think it's an interesting question because I think it's, you know, it's we're always talking about. You can get through this. And then I think for everyone to ask themselves, what the benefit of that looks like, I think that mo- is is an interesting question to ask, and I think your answer is really profound and mm-hmm. and really poignant. And I agree with you. I think to be able to, you know, you survived your situation to get to the point where you could be of aid to your friend and be kind mm-hmm. and how you know what I mean and like yeah and and that's, al- what,
3: that's what life is about and
2: allow her to then have healing and joy and beauty in her life. Right.
3: Because right, she has two little kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even when she doesn't want to survive, she yes. has two little boys that need her. Yeah. I have a quote
4: on my wall from Emily Dickinson, and it says, What is this life for if not to make life easier for each other? Mm. That's beautiful. Exactly. It's incredible. And that's why I cook. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That's right. They this go together. They this do. was
2: a really great conversation. You know, this it's was great. It's so interesting. Everyone is so unique in their own, not only their own experience with grief, but just in their cadence, their candor, their personality, their vibration that they bring into this little recording studio here. And most people that we talk to are strangers. And yet by the end of a conversation, you end up feeling like we've known each other forever.
4: Definitely and we know each other longer. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: but, you know, I'm really glad that you survived your grief because what you brought to this show today and, you know, just to our, your conversation with Bobby and I personally and to the other people who are going to listen to this is so valuable and rich. And you're a lovely, lovely person. It was Thank so you. nice. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your emotions and your vulnerability. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah, you so much. Great.
3: Bye-bye.
1: As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep Food Radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. Hey, folks, so we
2: hope you enjoyed our talk with Tracy um, as much as we did. Uh, Again, she was just such an easy-to-talk-to person. um, But her story um, was really tough, and suicide is really tough, and it affects a lot of us. And I think at this time, when a lot of us are isolated and uh, stuck with some challenging feelings things can get dark. And so I want to take this opportunity to just remind everyone of um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. There's a lot of other suicide prevention resources online. Um, And, you know, if you are starting to have dark thoughts or, uh, really complicated feelings surrounding what's happening right now, um, if it's triggering for you, we really urge you to reach out to a mental health professional, uh, or a suicide, uh, hotline, um, friends and family, uh, you know, we may physically be alone, but there are a lot of resources and people to talk to. And this is very, very, very challenging time, but it will also pass. And in that, so may your dark feelings. And so I think it's just important to remember that while this can be, um, almost unbearable for some people that there is life after this and a life that is worth living. And hopefully if you are having, Feelings like this, or you know anyone who is having feelings like this, we really urge you to please reach out for help. Again, the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. I also wanted to mention um, that for people who may be in an abusive relationship or know somebody in an abusive relationship, this can also be um, a very, very, very difficult time because you can be trapped with someone who is abusing you. Um so if you are being abused or you know someone that is being abused during this time or any time, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-7233 and again there's a lot of other resources online. Um but this is a general one and I just wanted to share that with you. I mean that that is unrelated to our episode, but um, It was just something that I had been thinking about because a lot of us have, you know, honestly, the luxury, even despite um, it being a hard time and losing our jobs and being unemployed and and being broke, um, a lot of us still have the luxury of being home and making, you know, sourdough bread. And so it's important to remember that a lot of folks during this time Um, are not having that experience are not compelled to make sourdough bread uh, wouldn't even be an option you know they don't have any money they're very depressed they're in a bad situation so um, let's all think about anyone in our lives that we know that might be really struggling during this time and do what we can to help them is it uh, reaching out with a number for mental health professional um, or help getting out of a dangerous situation Uh, is it help with you know maybe a friend who's an undocumented worker who is not eligible for uh, receiving any government aid during this crisis. And do they need money? Can we raise money for them? Can we point them in the direction of where to get assistance with food and supplies? Um, You know, there's a variety, a wide range of people who need help uh, from someone who is doing well and and making sourdough bread. I'm sorry for all you sourdough makers out there, which I am included in that group. Um, This is not a shot at you. It's just, you know, even people who are doing well, could still use a a smile and a hello. And then there are people who are really, really, really deeply in need of help right now. So just a reminder to um, really take care of yourselves and each other. It's really important. Um, This is a moment in history that we will see an end to and life will begin again. And we all want to try to get out of it on the other side. And that requires an enormous amount of help um, from people in our community. And, It seems in this crisis, as though you know, people who are average, everyday working folk are the ones who are organizing grassroots kind of things to help each other, and that is incredible, and uh, it's beautiful. And let's all participate and do our thing. So, thanks for listening to this episode. Thank you for to Tracy. What a amazing soul you are. I can't wait. to catch up with you again. Um, we're recording a catch-up episode this week with a bunch of guests. See how everyone is faring during this time. And Tracy will be one of them. We really look forward to talking to her. I know she's working on some really, really cool stuff. So we're going to bring that to you next week. And uh, yeah, take care of yourselves and each other. And please reach out processing at org with your listener letters. And um, if you need help. And also... It seems odd to ask you guys to rate and review and subscribe to the show right now because it's like the least important thing to do with your time. But in a way it isn't because the more reviews and subscriptions we get for the show, um, the more visible the show becomes to people who haven't been able to know about it before. And that is important because this is a very challenging time. And I think that our show is helpful to help people realize that they can get through some of the worst stuff. And I would like it to be available to as many people as possible for that reason. So if you do have a minute, um, it it really actually only takes a minute. So to write a quick review, just, that would be great. Um, Again, please do everything else important that you have to before that. Um, So, but anyway, if you have time, that'd be cool. All right, love you guys. Thanks so much for listening and uh, stay safe and stay inside if you can. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.